The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is Jacob Yasha Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. Nathan Sim of the Section of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine at the Veterans Affairs Hospital in Washington, D.C. He is an assistant professor of medicine at George Washington University and conducts translational research on biomarkers of inflammation and coagulation in ARDS and sepsis. Welcome, Dr. Sim. Thanks, Yasha. In today's podcast, I will discuss the ARDS Cognitive Outcome Study, or ACOS, with the study's first author, Mark Michelson, as well as an expert in the field of long-term ARDS outcomes, Margaret Herrich. Dr. Michelson is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Director of Medical Education for the Critical Care Section in the Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Division of the Perlman School of Medicine, the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Harridge is Associate Professor of Medicine, the University of Toronto, as well as University Health Network Critical Care and Respiratory Medicine Clinician Scientist and Director of Research of the Medical Surgical ICU. Let's get started. Dr. Michelson, what was the objective of your study? Before I sort of talk about the objectives of the study, I was thinking about the background, which is really important about the context of the landscape for the study. So back in 1999, Dr. Mona Hopkins sort of brought to our attention the Sentinel article that highlighted that long-term cognitive impairment appears to be quite common in survivors from acute lung injury. And it was one year later where the ARDS Clinical Trials Network published now the landmark trial which demonstrated that a lung protective ventilation strategy saves lives in patients with acute lung injury. And so together, the sense was mortality is decreasing and the legacies, as has been coined, of critical illness is increasing and the concept of critical care survivorship was born. So within this context, one of the questions was, we've never studied survivors from a multicenter trial. And Jason Christie, who has been my mentor for the past seven years, had the question, how can we go about doing this? And so he partnered with a neuropsychologist here at Penn, Rose Beaster, and one of the pioneers in the field, Mona Hopkins, to basically set forth about doing that. And so they developed and validated a telephone-based neuropsychological test battery that could be used in the future in a multi-center trial, and that was really the origin. They then partnered with leaders like Derek Angus, Taylor Thompson, Paul Lankin, and put into place the plan to roll this telephone-based battery out to survivors from the multi-center ARDS network fluid and catheter treatment trial. And so with that background, the three aims of the study of ACOS were, one, whether it's feasible to use this telephone-based battery to assess long-term neuropsychological function, two, to determine the frequency of long-term neuropsychological morbidity in the context that the prior studies were single-center studies, and then three, to get a better sense of what the potential risk factors for the development of this impairment was. And so those were the really three primary objectives of the study. So, Dr. Harrod, you've conducted some of the seminal research on long-term outcomes in ARDS. 
So before we get started with sort of the meat of Dr. Michelson's study, I'd, I'd ask you to provide us some background about what we know about functional outcomes in ARDS and how does the ACOS study differ from prior studies of functional outcomes? There really is a lot of literature on functional outcomes after ARDS now, and I think it's an important point to emphasize here that the most studied group of patients with ARDS are those with severe ARDS. And I would offer that we should think about this group as a distinctive clinical phenotype because they are like each other. Just as an example, this clinical phenotype tend to be younger. They tend to be patients in their 40s. They are very often people without or with very few pre-existing or co-existing conditions. And across our different ARDS single center cohorts, these are patients who typically have a risk factor for ARDS of either pneumonia or sepsis. I think it's a very important point in terms of the external validity or the generalizability of not only these single center data, but also the multi-center data from the ACOS study that we're going to talk about in more detail to follow. The functional outcomes in ARDS really are as follows, and our group was able to show that many of these patients do not regain their pre-morbid functional status after an episode of severe ARDS, and being a young working patient who is previously well does not guarantee that, so that there may be some irreversible morbidity in terms of nerve and muscle dysfunction that these patients sustain. Similarly, these patients will have increased risk and there is good documentation for marked prevalence of mood disorders, cognitive dysfunction, and in those with no prior pulmonary disease, these patients, at least the survivors who don't typically fibrose, will have excellent pulmonary recovery. The ACOS study shares the common demographics of these other single center cohort studies. The ACOS study differs because their focus really was on neurocognitive and psychological outcomes, and they didn't study functional outcomes in conjunction with that. It was very much a study focused on that. The other challenge that they had, because they did use a telephone follow-up instrument, was that they did have some difficulties with follow-up and with completion of their study. So, Dr. Michelson, I'd ask you to explain the design of the study, including the population that you studied. So, ACOS was a prospective cohort study of survivors from the fluid and catheter treatment trial. And herein, the neuropsychological battery was administered via the telephone to survivors at two and or 12 months post-hospital discharge. And an important point is that the call center was centralized at the University of Pittsburgh. So calls actually went out. Someone picked up the phone at Pittsburgh, one of two non-neuropsychologists who administered it, and they dialed the phone number of survivors from the fluid and catheter treatment trial across the United States. The University of Pittsburgh was selected as the centralized site uh, for one of several reasons. The most important was that it relied on the infrastructure that was in place for a NIH-funded long-term follow-up study of fact known as the Economic Analysis of the Pulmonary Artery Catheter Study. So Derek Angus was the PI of that study, and they had the infrastructure, which included follow-up by telephone, 
such that we could conduct this ancillary study. So with that background, the battery was administered to 122 of the 1,001 subjects from 28 hospitals. And just to get a sense of what the battery entailed, it was an assessment of cognitive function as well as the psychiatric domains of depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder, the latter three being screening tools to assess for symptoms as opposed to the gold standard by a psychiatrist. In regards to the cognitive domains that were assessed, there were five, but we really focused on three for several reasons. First, memory, verbal fluency, and executive function had previously been demonstrated to be domains that were affected in survivors of ARDS, as well as that they were susceptible to acute injury. And impairment was defined as someone who scored greater than two standard deviations below the population normative data. And by selecting three domains and not going to say seven, eight, nine, or 10, and using the conservative definition, the goal was to really minimize the risk of a type one error. And then last, in regards to what endpoints we studied, we were able to draw quality of life that was measured at 12 months as part of Dr. Angus's EPAC study. And so collectively, as Dr. Harridge had mentioned, we really were focused on neuropsychological outcomes. In addition, we had a quality of life measure, which was the QE2 here. Dr. Michelson, you mentioned that the participants in ACOS came from the original FACT trial. I was hoping you could remind the listeners about the design and outcome of FACT, and if you could also mention if the ACOS cohort differed at all from the other FACT participants. Absolutely. So to go back to the fluid and catheter treatment trial, it was a multi-center, elegantly designed, two-by-two factorial design study that was conducted by the ARDS Clinical Trials Network. And there were really two different strategies that were tested here. The first was fluid management strategy, comparing what was coined a conservative strategy versus a liberal strategy. And separately, there was the question of what approach to guide the strategy would be best, utilizing either a central venous catheter or a pulmonary artery catheter. And to speak a little bit more about the fluid management strategy, the question was really to examine the risks and benefits of the two different strategies. For example, the question, which was really quite well described in the introduction and the discussion, was could a conservative fluid management strategy achieve through fluid restriction and the use of furosemide, could it improve lung function and related, could it improve lung function without adversely affecting non-pulmonary organ function. And the findings from the large study was that while there was no mortality difference between the conservative and liberal fluid management strategies, the conservative arm resulted in improved lung function as hypothesized, as well as shorter duration on the ventilator and related less time in the intensive care unit because people got off the ventilator sooner. And then the question about how does the ACOS cohort differ from the FACT participants. That's a really important distinction. So compared to survivors, 60-day survivors in particular from FACT who did not participate in ACOS, 
the subjects who were included in ACOS were, one, more likely to be female, two, they were more likely to be non-Hispanic whites, three, they were less likely to have HIV or AIDS, and four, they were less likely to have pneumonia as their cause for acute lung injury. There were no significant differences in regards to age, other coexisting conditions, severity of illness, or other baseline characteristics. And so, in summary, there were important differences, and yet there were also important similarities between survivors from FACT and those who were enrolled in ACOS. Dr. Herridge, Dr. Michelson just mentioned the differences between the ACOS cohort compared to the original FACT trial. I was wondering what you thought the, the impact of those differences might be on interpreting what their results might be. I think it's hard to take any one of those variables and say a lot of novel things about any one of those factors. However, I think the fact that there were measurable systematic differences between the cohorts is of some significance. We are going to talk later about some of the challenges with telephone interviews using this neuropsychological instrument and some of the results that came from this study, which I think are very important and timely observations. But I think when we are able to document important systematic differences between the cohorts that are studied here, it does raise concerns about other confounding variables, variables that we know could be linked to the exposure and independent risk factors for the outcome that may not have been measured here that could have influenced some of the study findings. Dr. Michelson, I'll ask you to describe your findings for survivors in terms of their long-term cognitive function. So I think we can summarize our findings in regards to long-term cognitive function in several ways. First, we confirm that cognitive impairment appears to be a common event in acute lung injury survivors. Here, in fact, basically one of two survivors demonstrated cognitive sequelae 12 months post-hospital discharge. And because of the conservative definition that we used, I think it's fair to say that these impairments are moderate to severe. And then last, because we measured it at 12 months with a focus on long-term neuropsychological function, I think it's reasonable to conclude that these impairments persist at least in the intermediate term. I know we call these long-term outcomes, but there are more important longer-term tests that could be done two years beyond which Dr. Hopkins has done. And so I think it provides additional evidence that these impairments do persist. I think something that's interesting here is that we found that executive dysfunction, and highlighted in particular, is a common impairment in acute lung injury survivors. And so I think those are really the take-home points, is that we confirmed through this approach what has been demonstrated now in a growing number of studies looking at the long-lasting effects on cognition after acute lung injury. What risk factors from FACT did you identify for long-term cognitive impairment? We identified two risk factors which were associated independently with the development of long-term cognitive impairment, but really more specifically executive dysfunction. And the first really confirms prior work by Mona Hopkins that found that hypoxemia here being lower partial pressure of arterial oxygen during the FACT study 
was found to be associated with cognitive impairment at 12 months. And here we found that for a 10-unit decrease, for example, in unadjusted analysis in the partial pressure of arterial oxygen, the odds ratio for the development of cognitive impairment increased by about 1.6. And the second finding, which we'll discuss in greater detail later, was that enrollment in the conservative fluid management strategy as well as the target of the fluid management strategy being lower central venous pressures were each associated with long-term cognitive impairment. And the odds of long-term impairment was found to be fourfold higher in subjects who were randomized to the conservative fluid management strategy. Dr. Michelson, I'll ask you about the other aspect of the study, long-term psychiatric function. What were your findings there? So, sort of an ongoing theme is that we really confirmed what prior studies had also demonstrated, which was that depression, anxiety, PTSD, these symptoms are all incredibly common in acute lung injury survivors to the tune of 36% of survivors experienced depressive symptoms at 12 months, PTSD, 39% of survivors, and moderate or severe anxiety present in as many as 62%, a pretty staggering number of long-term survivors. And a couple of other points just to highlight is that it was really common that patients actually had impairment in two or more domains. 42% of the survivors had impairment in two or more domains. And another finding that I think really is something that we've seen in recent studies is that there's a really close association between cognitive impairment as well as psychiatric or mood impairment. And whether it's a chicken or an egg phenomenon, there are and is evidence to support both approaches. Dr. Mona Hopkins has a study that showed that cognitive impairment preceded the development of it. But I think when we talk about where do we go from here later in our discussion, I think it's just incredibly important to realize that these impairments don't live alone. They often feed on one another and are really so closely intertwined. And then, Dr. Michelson, what risk factors did you identify from FACT for long-term psychiatric morbidity? The two findings that we found in regards to long-term psychiatric morbidity were, one, that hypoxemia was associated with long-term psychiatric morbidity, specifically anxiety. And this supports prior work done by Mona Hopkins that demonstrated this association. And then second was an association between the presence of a hypoglycemic episode during the hospitalization and psychiatric morbidity, specifically anxiety. And I think that this sort of extends recent work by Dr. Needham's group that found that hypoglycemia, or sort of nutrition for the brain being glucose, was found to be associated with depression at three months in subjects that were studied at Hopkins. And so one of the signals here is that be it hypoxia or glucose, the signal exists that organic brain injury may be associated with these psychiatric symptoms. And so I think in general, the take-home points are that it's just incredibly common, these impairments, and that these two phenomenon being hypoxemia and hypoglycemia are things that we really need to be attuned to occurring in the ICU with potential downstream effects. 
Dr. Harridge, I'd ask for your thoughts on the study findings, and I'd ask you to comment on how they compare to some of the prior studies. I think there are really very many important observations from this study. The first is that they were able to confirm in a multi-center sample many of the observations that have been in the literature now for many years but have been demonstrated only in single-center samples. So a multi-center sample showing that neurocognitive dysfunction and mood disorders are incredibly common is a really huge issue in my opinion as well. This really should put to rest any notion that these patients do not sustain morbidity, quite the opposite, that this morbidity lives on and causes all sorts of other difficulties and manifests itself through inability to return to work, inability to resume prior relationships, inability to achieve an acceptable quality of life after critical illness. So I would really congratulate their group in that way that they were able to really confirm this robust finding that previously had only been documented in uh, single-center studies. My other comments are this study really helps to reinforce, again, what Mona Hopkins' work did in 1999, which is really this, that what we do in the ICU every day has very important long-term ramifications and that we as critical care physicians need to make daily decisions, some of which or many of which may seem pretty mundane, but all of these decisions add up to better or worse outcomes, and we need to see our decision-making on a daily basis through the lens of long-term outcome. I really feel this is one of the most important teaching points from this study by this very esteemed group of colleagues that it reinforces that notion that ICU treatment can manifest for years and really change people's lives. I really don't think that our community gets that yet. Dr. Harridge, I'd ask you about telephone testing. You know, in the prior studies, in-person expert assessment was done, and that is obviously extremely challenging to do in survivors mm. of critical illness. Now, in this study, the telephone testing theoretically would help us study more patients and make it easier to do this type of challenging research. So I'd ask you about whether this type of telephone testing is a valid instrument to measure neuropsychological function in this population. I think that there are two issues. One is whether we feel this instrument is valid, and the second issue, which is whether this approach is feasible. So let me first answer the initial point. I think there's no question that this instrument is valid. Uh, this work comes from prior work uh, by uh, my colleagues Jason Christie and Mona Hopkins and was published in the Journal of Critical Care in 2006. In the current study, and despite, I have no doubt, heroic efforts on the part of this very accomplished team, there were many challenges in terms of being able to operationalize this neuropsychological telephone instrument. But just in terms of feasibility, 
when we look at the numbers in the ACOS study, those that were truly eligible for ACOS were 406 patients, and only 213 of these patients consented. So we have a significant proportion of patients who declined consent or who could not be contacted. And ultimately, they were able to complete full testing in 75 of these patients. Again, I emphasize that this is a very rigorous group with infrastructure who know exactly what they're doing. This doesn't speak to personnel issues. This speaks to perhaps some more fundamental issues about patients' willingness to engage in a conversation about very personal and intimate information over the telephone with someone that they do not know. So, Dr. Michelson, we talked a little bit about attrition, and I was not surprised, given the challenge of this type of research, that attrition was a follow-up in your study. What were the specific reasons for loss of patients to follow up, and how might that impact your findings? So, attrition in long-term follow-up studies of critically ill patients is often due to mortal losses, and ACOS was no exception in regards to that. However, there were some particulars with ACOS that I think the good news is that I don't think other studies are going to encounter this, and it's the major drop-off from 1,001 to 406 that Dr. Harridge spoke to, and those were things like the trial initiation starting after FACT had started, the halt in regulation in the parent study, and I think that these affected the number of patients that were eligible. Now, the question about how does the loss to follow-up impact our findings, I think Dr. Harridge really nailed it earlier, which is that it really is tough when you're talking about this, and it is unclear how the loss to follow-up may have impacted our findings. And it is absolutely true that results may not generalize to the broader fact population. I would say where possible, for example, in our risk factor analyses, We conducted sensitivity analysis where we varied our assumptions about whether someone was impaired or not impaired. And while these analyses supported the two observed associations, I think it's incredibly important to acknowledge that this does not by any means provide full assurance that the findings are true, but it was the best that we could do. One comment I just might make in response to Dr. Michelson's comment is that The study nicely highlights some of the challenges with telephone follow-up, but it clearly has a role. And I guess the way I might think about different methods for follow-up is really this, that there is unlikely to be one particular follow-up method that answers all questions and also addresses different patient population issues. It's unlikely that one size will fit all because we are talking about very difficult mental health and physical health issues. One thing that I found interesting was that though the ACOS cohort had 12-month follow-up and only approximately 10% of the 1,000 fact participants, the enrollment in the conservative fluid strategy group, which had beneficial secondary endpoints such as ventilator-free days, as Dr. Michelson mentioned, enrollment in that conservative group was a risk factor for neurocognitive impairment at 12 months. And so as we enter this sort of brave new world of looking at long-term outcomes and maybe not appreciating some of the unintended consequences of critical illness, this does uh, 
concern me. So I'd ask Dr. Michelson, I'm sure when you came across this, you found this quite interesting and asked for your thoughts on this. I agree. It is very interesting. I think it's fair to say that it's fairly controversial as well. So the reality is that, as Dr. Harrigan, I have sort of spoken about earlier, is that there are legitimate reasons to be cautious about the interpretation of this finding. And just to revisit those, it's namely, like you just said, that you start with 1,001 patients and you're talking about 75 at the 12-month time point. So I think that's incredibly important. There is no way around it. It's simply to be acknowledged. In addition, it's a select population that was studied. There were some differences in regards to those who survived, who were studied, and those that were not studied. And then, as Dr. Harridge alluded to earlier, there is no clear physiologic mediator that would explain this. And by that, I mean, while the overall study had slightly lower stroke volumes or cardiac index when they were enrolled in the conservative fluid management strategy, in the subset of ACOS patients that we were investigating, there was no specific physiologic mechanism that would explain it in a way that I think people would say, aha, I get it. It's the this or the that. And I think the most likely one would have been a systemic pressure difference, mean arterial pressure, cardiac index. And I think that those are the reasons why we need to be very cautious. And it's why we are very interested to see what novel creative strategies can be done to confirm this or sort of further our understanding of how this might make sense. So I think that's one side of the coin. But I think we also need to acknowledge the other side of the coin, which is that there is an argument that can be made for why we need to pay specific attention and respect this signal, if you will. And that logic would go like this. First, it's plausible. It's the reason that the study was actually done. The question was, might a conservative fluid management strategy improve lung function, but potentially at the adverse consequence of non-pulmonary organ function here, potentially the brain. And I think the introduction and discussion of fact really highlight that there was a question of the risks and benefits. I think the next question is, were the two different groups similar in regards to their baseline characteristics when you look at those select patients who were actually studied? We find that the liberal fluid management strategy group had a higher severity of illness, actually, Otherwise, the baseline characteristics were not different. And so that at least is a signal that says these groups were more similar than they were dissimilar. With that, I'm interested to hear what Dr. Harridge has to say. Well, I think it is definitely a very complex issue. And because of that, difficult to really interpret. And I don't mean that to be sitting on the fence, but I think that I view these data as hypothesis-generating data rather than mature data. And I say that really for the following reasons. There's a fundamental difference here between the observations linking hypoxemia to neurocognitive dysfunction and hypoglycemia to mood disorder. And that fundamental distinction or difference is that these observations have been reported independently in different study samples by different investigators. And 
that's a powerful thing. We have many signals now linking the, as I mentioned, the hypoxemia and hypoglycemia. We don't have any signal anywhere about conservative fluid strategy. Now, I respect what Dr. Michelson said very much, and I don't necessarily disagree at all. But I think the ramifications of proceeding down the road of conservative fluid strategy based on this study with its inherent limitations, despite everyone's best and heroic efforts, is quite problematic. I definitely am struck by that when I read the paper. I find the observation extremely interesting. I find the observation provocative, but I find the observation definitely one that requires further study, perhaps going back to animal data as well to really tease out a much more detailed understanding of what the pathophysiologic mechanisms are at play here. I really do think that these data or this aspect of this project isn't ready for prime time because it is an isolated finding in the context of all of the limitations that we've already discussed. I want to talk a little bit more about this general concept. I think, you know, for one of the things that I thought about after reading this study is that we must consider the possibility that interventions that improve shorter-term outcomes may be associated with worse long-term survivor function. I think back to the ARDSNET paper, the 6 cc's versus 12 cc's per kilo study, in which mortality was decreased by the 6 cc's per kilo uh, tidal volume regimen. But yet the 12 cc per kilo group had better oxygenation. So we've talked about hypoxia and long-term outcomes. So I think it's a challenging time for clinicians and for our patients about you know what we do with this data that as Dr. Harris mentioned, is at this point uh, hypothesis generating. So since I'm lucky enough to have you both on this podcast, I'll ask for your perspective. So first, Dr. Michelson, how will this data that's accumulating regarding long-term function impact the judgments physicians make and the discussions we have with patients and families through critical illness and now through recovery? I think that's an awesome question. And as an intensivist and a critical care researcher, I think it's probably one of the highlights of being an intensivist in this point in time. And it's because I think it's incredibly important in the short term to improve survival. A patient is in front of us in the ICU. Our goal is to get them out of the ICU. However, there's also a long-term goal, and it's to improve the lives of those who are fortunate to survive the intensive care unit stay. And to achieve the latter, as Dr. Harridge was saying, we're at a point where we need to realize that what we do in the ICU matters in the short term and the long term potentially. And we need to apply those interventions that make it more likely that one can survive and in the ability that it's possible regain one's pre-morbid function, be it physical, be it cognitive, be it mood. And we need to avoid those potential interventions that may lead us astray from those primary goals. And so the conclusion that I have is that we need to study short-term outcomes, but we also need desperately to be studying the long-term ramifications of any intervention. And I think when we talk about the highlight or the take-home message, I think it's, as Dr. Harridge has really clearly stated,
stated, cognitive impairment, physical impairment, they're really common, and they affect the lives of patients. And it affects the families who care for these loved ones at home in a way that's incredibly powerful. And so in this era, as my friend Jack Iwashina wrote, survivorship is going to be one of the defining characteristics of modern-day critical care. And so my perspective is that it may be that paradoxically, and I want to talk about the hypothetical, moving on a little bit from the provocative fluid management issue, and just say hypothetically, it is absolutely possible that an intervention could improve short-term outcomes and paradoxically worsen long-term outcomes. We don't need to look that much further than the history of coronary artery bypass graft surgery. Although that remains controversial, we can learn from what occurred there, which is that there was a signal that cognitive impairment occurred after bypass, and people went back, just like Dr. Harridge detailed, to basic laboratory data and applied novel interventions and technologies, including like off-pump surgery, to basically better understand the problem and also sort of send the signal that said, maybe this isn't bypass necessarily. Maybe it's actually that the risk factors for a vascular major neurocognitive impairment is what's driving this not bypass. But the reality is that when things do not align, if short-term outcomes do not align with long-term outcomes, then first we need to question and dig deeper to see if the signal is true just like we've talked about doing today with the ACOS findings. But when we confirm it, if we confirm it, then taking a step back, going back to the drawing board and deciding how do we basically align these? What can we change to achieve both of our missions, which is to help people get out of the ICU and live the lives that they and their families want them to live afterwards? And I think that's the way that I'm currently thinking about that really tough question. Dr. Harridge, I'd ask for your comments about where we go from here. I agree with uh, Dr. Michelson that it is a very exciting time to be an intensivist, especially if you're someone as we are, and many of our colleagues who we've mentioned throughout this podcast are really committed to the study of long-term outcomes. I maybe just want to reiterate what I said earlier, that I think as teachers, clinicians, we need to educate our house staff and our colleagues about seeing the mundane daily care through the lens of long-term outcome. I also would want to say this, that obviously to have morbidity, you need to be alive. So I completely reinforce what Dr. Michelson was saying. I mean, clearly we need our patients to survive. And there is no question that there is a risk that what we do to save a life may cause a certain degree or a lot of morbidity. Um, there's an example that Derek Angus always uses when he talks on this topic, and just to give him the credit for it and not take it myself, he talks about steroids in neonatal ICU and how definitely this helped improve lung injury in preemies with respiratory distress syndrome. But when those same kids were followed up, they had profound cognitive dysfunction, and actually this has led to a change in practice and a much more conservative administration of systemic corticosteroids. So this would be a very disturbing example of this very phenomenon where an intervention that is life-saving really alters the outcome of the patient. 
There's no question that this requires a lot of additional study. And what I would also offer, too, is that we need to, when studying this, really partner with our basic science colleagues and not just make clinical observations, but really explore the translational studies and understand the molecular mechanistic issues that are driving these things like brain injury, like we've been talking about today, and also the complex pathophysiology involved in peripheral nerve and muscle dysfunction in terms of long-term functional outcomes. So I think just in terms of our research agenda, those issues also need to be addressed and in a translational way, in a longitudinal way, in an educational way. Thank you both for joining me today. That will bring today's podcast to a close. The ACOS study results are published in the June 15, 2012 issue of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. A complete archive of the ATS article discussion podcast can be found at thoracic.org or by searching in iTunes for American Thoracic Society article discussion. I'm Nitin Seem for the American Thoracic Society.